listener exclusive. I have a delicious secret. The Limestone Coast's Hidden Secrets. Limestone Coasters, it is time for a brand new app of the Limestone Coast Hidden Secrets. And today, well today I want to talk about a hidden secret which is probably very, very well hidden. I can guarantee that not a lot of you will know the story that I am going to tell. I'm going to tell it with a bloke who is far smarter than I am. His name is Dr. Pete Gill. He is in charge of the Blue Whale Study. He comes from just across the border, incidentally. Peter, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Ewan. How are you? Yeah, good. Peter, I don't know whether anybody knows it all, but I find it fascinating that we have blue whales that visit the Limestone Coast on a yearly basis, and they just swim past, and not a lot of people know about it. Uh, yeah, it's probably been happening for quite a few thousand years, I'd say. It's uh, These blue whales are in our part of the world to feed, um, and they're spread out over a huge area, let's say, from... King Island uh, or you know northwestern Tasmania into Bass Strait and right up to the area south of Kangaroo Island and and even beyond so a vast area mostly on the continental shelf but also there's uh, areas further offshore not too far away where we've got blue whales they're here during the summer months to feed uh, as a result of um, what we call cold water upwelling which is a very productive um, ocean system. And we're talking specifically about the Bonnie upwelling. People will know that from the festival in Poland. Yeah, and that's very relevant to the limestone coast because the Bonnie upwelling is part of a larger upwelling system that extends right throughout that area that I just described. Mm. Uh, but the Bonnie upwelling is a bit special because it's where the upwelling reaches the surface. And I'm sure some of your Listeners have um, dab dabbled their toes in very cold water in summer along that coast, and the the water is seawater is actually colder along that coast and down around Portland during summer than during winter because you've got this cold water that might be ten or eleven degrees when it's brought to the surface um, in these bays and near headlands along the coast. That that's simply the result of this upwelled water, which is cold water that originally uh, was formed in the Antarctic and drifted across the floor of the Southern Ocean and was, is drawn up onto the continental shelf by the action of southeast winds. That, that sounds a bit simplistic, but the southeast winds drive a current um, along the coast to the northwest, and because of the rotation of the Earth, the surface water wants to drift offshore and it has to be replaced with something so uh, it, it's like a pump that draws this cold nutrient rich water up over the edge of the continental shelf up into daylight where the the nutrients meet uh, sunlight and there's a huge blooming of phytoplankton which are the tiny minuscule plants that are the basis of the food chains in all the oceans and then you have um, very abundant swarms of krill feeding on phytoplankton, and then you've got the krill are feeding a whole food chain, including you know bluefin tuna, uh, baitfish, dolphins, seals, seabirds, and at the top of the heap we've got blue whales, which are the largest predator of all. Now, blue whales, largest animal ever on planet Earth. 
Only about ten or 20,000 of them left. How did you discover a love of blue whales, Peter? Well, I got involved. I've been hanging around whales for quite a few years now. I got involved in humpback whale research back in the early 80s. Uh, so yeah, oh wow, I've been I've been in that game for forty years now. But um, and I did see blue whale a handful of blue whales in the Antarctic on a couple of research trips I did down there, and I remember seeing once with its young calf. But blue whales in Australia just seemed to no, it didn't seem to be a thing. You know, they were regarded as a species that occasionally swam through our waters on their way somewhere else but then i read a report of a, a survey done by uh, international group of scientists from the international whaling commission which is not it, it, it anyway they were doing research they mm. weren't doing it for whaling they were trying to see where the last surviving pockets of blue whales were around the world so they did a survey from Fremantle in wa to uh, Hobart and going to areas where Soviet whalers had been killing blue whales during the 1960s so they were checking out some of these areas and yes they found blue whales off Portland and this was sort of written up in a report and buried basically and I, I was in a one of the officers of the Commonwealth government in Canberra looking through their archives one day and found this report and thought, ooh, you know, that's pretty interesting. So the, a couple of years later, I uh, sailed from Adelaide on a yacht with a group of friends uh, that I'd done whale research with before, and we sailed down around Portland, and we found blue whales feeding, and then I, I found a, an oceanographer working with CSIRO who could explain to me that this was part of this very rich ocean system that, was very rarely discussed. Not much research had ever been done there. And no one had any idea that blue whales were uh, hanging around there, except, of course, cray fishermen had probably been seeing them for years, but just thought, well, they're big whales. Some of them might have realised they were blue whales, but didn't realise the significance of their being there, which was actually that they were there as part of a globally significant feeding area for this endangered species. Now, Peter, what's it like getting up close and personal to the largest animal to ever have been on planet Earth? I mean, it, it, it must be... I'm speechless talking about it. I don't know what it'd be like to be beside them. Uh, it, it always takes my breath away a bit when I'm near one. Even in an aircraft, it's always exciting to see them. When you're in a small boat near them, it's a pretty awe-inspiring, you know. And we've and over the course of years, we've had occasion to um, biopsy the whales, you know, that is to take tiny skin plugs out with a crossbow dart or a a dart fired from an air rifle or on occasion to attach tags to them to study their underwater um, feeding behavior and when you when you get that close to them they are completely awesome you know they are we'd be operating in boats that are six or seven meters long and you're dealing with an animal that's you know about four times the length of your boat and many 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 times heavier 
and yet they always act with a kind of decorum. You know, they never try to um, wipe you out. They could do that so easily. Uh, but they're kind of a they've they've got a character all their own. Blue whales. They're quite an aloof sort of animal. They're not curious like humpback whales. They won't come up and stick their heads out of the water to have a look at you. They just doing their own thing, looking for food. They're not particularly interested in interactions with boats and they're incredibly gracious when we're, you know, when we do something like drive up beside them and um, stick a little tag on them, mm. you know, things like that. Other species of whales can react quite um, vigorously. But blues just seem to mm, go their own way and might ignore you for the next half hour, but then they'll you know come past you again looking for krill so they yeah they've got a character all their own blue whales so they're, they're a character that kind of fits their um them being the largest animal of all you know there's a kind of a elegance and a kind of um politeness about them I, I don't know that's probably not the right word but they're not an aggressive species they just want to keep to themselves and do their own thing which is getting enough food to um, keep their condition up so they can have a happy breeding season up in Indonesian waters where they migrate to and uh, help to propagate their species, which is their, their main role in life. Peter, why is it important to study the blue whales? And, and what are you studying as part of the blue whale study? Well, it's important because it's important to study all of nature to know what we've got and we are losing a lot of nature at the moment so it's in, and and look 30 years ago no one even knew these whales were here so you could have you know imagine the government might have said well we want to have a, a military testing range where we're going to set off underwater explosions there's nothing special about that area let's go you know but now we know no we we, we have an area that is uh, very special to these um, very iconic and interesting animals. And research is all about just, well, our research is about understanding the basic relationships between blue whales and their habitat, learning about their movements, about what their requir requirements are. And our, our motivation is to try and understand the thing, the information that we need to um, sustain their their future you know like where they go when they're there what they're doing how vulnerable they are to disturbance or, or you know other other um, factors that humans might impose on them uh, and so over the years we've done a lot of aerial surveys which you're simply flying around in a plane spotting them um, and plotting them and then, you know, mapping their distribution against ocean temperatures or other things like that. So we learn a lot about their habitat using aerial surveys. Um, using small boats, we often will just go out and try and photograph them because if you photograph the flanks of a blue whale, they have a unique pigment pattern on each side that's like a fingerprint. So we have a catalogue of about 250 blue whales that are now known animals and so and we share that with other colleagues in western australia and new zealand and antarctica and south america and um, and then from that you can learn about the large-scale 
movements of these whales without putting tags on them to do that. And you also start to learn about the life history of individual whales because, okay, we saw that whale, it was a, a calf in, you know, 2004, now it's a teenager and now it's we saw it with its own calf. So you can start to build these life histories. Um, you start to understand the relationships or the, the associations between individual whales because sometimes you might see the same pair of whales hanging out together for over a month or more. So you, you just start to get, they, they become more interesting as individuals when you can identify them. Um, and also at times we've put uh, tags on them and some of these have been suction cup tags that just slop onto the skin. With, you push them on with a pole and they might stay on for half a day and they give you all the data on how deep the whale's diving, when it's feeding, at what depth, what the water temperature is. So there's a, some amazing technology now that can you can use whales as instruments to study the ocean, you know, the, to, com, to give you a picture of how deep they're going, what they're doing when they're there. Um, and whether they're making any sounds, all of, all of that sort of thing. So, and also you can track their movements with these tags. So that's the sort of work that we've done over the years is just, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty basic whale research, but you learn a lot from it and learn a lot about individuals and you learn a lot about them as a population and their, their relationship to their habitat and so on. So, and Peter, you were lucky enough to go on a uh, an aerial survey uh, in the last week. Uh, yeah, we went flying on Monday. We had to try and squeeze one in because we've just had a pretty horrendous weather system came through for a couple of days. I'm just looking at a map. We flew along the shelf between Warrnambool and just west of Port Macdonnell um, up to about Carpenter's Rocks, I'd say. And... Uh, parallel transects that go from inshore right out to the edge of the continental shelf. And so we found it was pretty ordinary weather. We had rain squalls, low cloud. Uh, but despite that, we found seven blue whales and a lot of krill out there still. So it's getting late in the season. Um, typically, the season runs from November to about the end of April, but there's still blue ones out there in numbers at the moment uh, certainly around Portland where most of our sightings were and I know there have been recent sightings further east of Warrnambool in the last week or so so yeah this season's hanging in there um, we didn't get any further up the coast but in the past we've seen a lot of blue whales along that limestone coast over many years so that's a really important part of their feeding area as well up there Peter, tell me a little bit about, I suppose, things that people will not know about uh, blue whales, especially about their visiting of the, the, the region um, in the limestone coast. Well, it's part of an, an annual migration cycle that in winter, they well, when they leave here, I'll start at this point, we're right at the end of the upwelling season, near the end of the blue whale feeding season, when, when they've had enough food and they're you know, tanked up, basically, they'll start migrating west across the Great Australian Bight, uh, up the west coast of, of Australia, and they'll depart from the west coast somewhere up near Northwest Cape, and they'll head up through um, the gap sort of west of Timor and head up into the 
ocean waters in the Indonesian archipelago. And the thing, the reason they're there is, well, twofold. They're there to breed because that's just the area that they've chosen as a breeding area because it's got warm water, which makes life easy for their young calves for a while. And it also happens to be a very productive area where they can feed as well because the currents flow through the Indonesian archipelago that cause up a lot of upwelling. And blue whales, unlike humpback whales and southern right whales that are better known, both of those species have a thick blubber coat that enables them to fast right through the winter breeding season. So southern right whales come here from the end of May through to October. They don't need to feed. They're fat. Uh, they've got plenty of energy stores to, well, if you think of the female has to um, give birth to her calf and then feed it a lot of milk, very rich milk a day. So, but she's well supplied with that blubber coat. Blue whales have a thin blubber coat, so they're not, they don't fast during the winter. So they have to migrate to a breeding area where they can feed. Year, so they feed year round, basically. So they'll be up in the Indonesian waters until about September, and then they'll start migrating south again, and then they may come back here to the Bonnie Upwelling, or they may go further south into the Southern Ocean, or they may turn right near the bottom of Western Australia and head out into the Indian Ocean because these whales just disperse into a humongous area of, you know, millions of square kilometres. And, you know, we don't know where they are most of the time. We, we, all we, we just get to see the ones that come here that are accessible from the coast um, close to home. But they're, yeah, they disperse over an enormous area and we're, we're lucky enough to see some of them some of the time. Peter, it blows my mind that this all happens and we essentially have no idea about it. Is there any reason why tourist operators haven't worked out that there are blue whales down here? And, and, and what I suppose my question is, why aren't we, why aren't we taking advantage of a visit of the blue whales and, and using that as a tourism opportunity to, to educate people that these whales are endangered? That's a really good question. But um, the fact is that blue whales don't really lend themselves to boat-based tourism because they're constantly on the move. They're evasive. They don't particularly like boats coming near them. And they, for being the largest animal in the world, they have a, an uncanny ability to just disappear. You know, if they don't want you near them, they'll just dive, swim away, surface a couple of miles away and just go their, go their way. Uh, there was a trial back in oh, about 15 years ago, a whale-watching boat came down from the Gold Coast to try and make a go of it, and, and that failed. You know, they just, they couldn't get, they couldn't see enough whales, they couldn't get close enough to whales, they tried to get the rules changed so they could get closer to whales at the same time. I was trying to get the rules changed to make it harder to get close to blue whales because blue whales, I think what's more important is that blue whales are, uh, are left as undisturbed as possible. But, um, you know, the, the, the only way that business could have 
succeeded, I guess, was for them to really get up close to blue whales and it, it didn't work out. So um, what I'm saying is that it's not really a viable thing for blue whales. So it would be nice if there was a way to to get more people to see them. At the moment, you, you all you can do is either charter a plane or go out to the big headlands near Portland, Cape Nelson, Cape Bridgewater, with a pair of binoculars during the season and see whales blowing out at sea. It's very difficult to, even with our research permits that allow us to get close, it's still, on a, on a given day, the chances of going out and finding a whale within reach of Portland Harbour are quite slim. So, um, yeah, it, it's just not a viable business uh not a viable business model, I'd say. What are the uh, the pressures on blue whales, not only here in the limestone coast, but uh, but around the globe? Well, um, here in our part of the world, we have. Well, firstly, there's um, a lot of recreational fishing. I'm not saying that's a threat to them, but there is a lot of recreational fishing, particularly now that we've got such a, a keen emphasis on the southern bluefin tuna that come through but um, blue whales don't particularly like little boats buzzing around so they may tend to avoid areas where there's a lot of um, fishing going on um, we've got offshore energy developments we've had oil and gas operating along this coast since the 1980s um, that's been almost an annual um, thing that the Blue Whale Study has been dealing with over the years is trying to <clears throat> um, advise these companies on how to minimise their effects on blue whales because we're talking seismic surveys or drilling operations. So there's a lot of vessels and industrial noise at times in the oceans. We've got shipping along the coast and we know particularly from California that blue whales are vulnerable to being run over by ships. You might think a a whale with acute hearing uh, that might e easily avoid shipping, but that's not true. There's not a ships don't push a lot of noise in front of them. Most of their noise is behind them. And if a whale can hear that there's a ship somewhere nearby, but can't localize exactly where that is until it's too late, and remembering that some of these ships are doing 30 or 40 kilometers an hour. Um, and blue whales do get struck and killed by ships. And we know that happens in our part of the world as well. And then we've got the um, various effects of climate change. Now, climate change can affect oceans in various ways. It can, the warming of oceans can change the, if you think of the oceans as an area where there's cold and warm currents flowing in different parts of the world and they're being driven by different things by wind patterns or by movement of water somewhere else or uh, in the antarctic for example currents flow north from the antarctic in the deep ocean because of the formation of the sea ice every winter in every winter the, the skin of the ocean freezes to a depth of about one and a half meters and the freezing of the ice, a lot of salt, heavy salt water drops out of that ice as it's being formed and drives a very dense current that flows all the way north. And that's where the, the bonnie upwelling is fed by a current such as that. Now, the warming of Antarctica means that that 
current formation is slowing down. You know, and I've read of quite a worrying report recently that in another 20 or 30 years it could have slowed by 45% or something like that. So we're talking about a reduced productive currents that feed systems like the boiling upwelling. We're also talking about the ocean becoming more acidic because CO2 plus H2O equals H2CO3, which is carbonic acid. So the ocean's becoming more acidic and that can be a problem for animals with a, a shell like um, krill, for example. So we don't know exactly where that one's heading, but it is um, an increasing worry. And there are recent, there's recent evidence that the ocean in the Bonnie upwelling is becoming more acid. Uh, yeah, so, and, and krill don't like warm, they like cold, so if, if the oceans are getting warmer, that's shrinking habitat for krill worldwide. Um, yeah, so there's a few effects of climate change that are really concerning for those of us who study uh, baleen whales and, and their feeding systems. Um, but, you know, the jury's still out. We're... We're not in dire straits yet, but we do believe that we need to take action to um, minimise the possibility that these systems could uh, deteriorate or even collapse in the next uh, coming decades. Mm. Peter, that is a horrifying thought. Pete, we talked about the fact of, of why there is no um, uh, tourism opportunity to see the blue whales off our coast, but there is a chance for people to to check out the blue whales. You guys put up an awful lot of photos uh, and an awful lot of information on your Facebook page and your website. Tell me all about the blue whale study and how people can take a look at the blue whales that visit us. Well, the blue whale study is a, we're a not-for-profit um, research institute so we're, we're approved by CSIRO and we've got um, a, a charity status with the national charity um, regulator um, we are a very small organization and you know we're motivated by um, concern for the future of blue whales and for community education is also uh, one of our um, strands of work and and on that note we've done a lot of public talks and uh, put we put out sort of promotional information about blue whales about the bonnie upwelling and generally try to make that information as widely known as possible but as you said at the beginning of our interview um, <laughs> it's a struggle you know because the southern right whales around portland are very well known because they come into the harbor you know, the word gets around there's a whale and hundreds of people go down to the waterfront and they all get to have a wonderful look at a southern right whale. But blue whales are these kind of remote giants that if you're, if you're lucky and not many people go out to the, the capes with a pair of binoculars to, to see them. Uh, now we have a, um, a group of enthusiastic photographers who get out there a lot and post their sightings on a uh, a, a Facebook page called Our Beautiful Whales and I would recommend that anybody who's interested in whales sign up to that and then you get to hear about recent sightings and some beautiful photos provided by those people. Um, but back to the blue whale study, we, um, <clears throat> we have a website which is www.bluewhalestudy.org 
Um, and there's quite a lot of information on that website about blue whales, about the upwelling, about the blue whale study. And uh, we also have a Facebook page as well. And we get a little bit um, slack with that sometimes, but I did post the other day after we did our aerial survey and we try to keep people informed of what we're up to and post a few photos of what we've seen because we are in a very privileged position to be able to go out as researchers and see these animals, you know, more than most people. And uh, we're certainly interested in sharing those that information and those images with people. So, yeah. Peter, there are very few people in the world who have jobs that I'm jealous of. You are a man who I am jealous of because of the job <laughs> that you get to do. Um, thank you very much for, for telling us about this this fascinating thing that happens each and every year where blue whales visit the limestone coast as i said i am sure that there are an awful lot of people who have no idea that this happens uh as you say i'm sure that most of the crayfishes and uh, and fishers off our coast probably do know it happens it's a it's a, a state secret from their point of view but thank you for spotlighting i suppose a hidden secret of the limestone coast oh you're welcome you and yeah thanks for your interest mate listener.